Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. It was a jolting experience for a German woman to learn in her 30s that her grandfather was a monster, a Nazi concentration camp commandant whose brutality was featured in the film Schindler's List. For Jennifer Tiga, who is biracial, it was a stunning and shocking revelation that changed her life. She tells the story in her book, My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me, A Black Woman Discovers Her Family's Nazi Past. It's a very emotional read. Jennifer Tiga joins me in studio, and we thought it would be interesting to have someone from the Holocaust Museum and Learning Center in St. Louis react to her story as well. The museum's curator and director of education at the center, Dan Rich, also joins us. Thank you both for being with us. And Jennifer, welcome to St. Louis. Thank you. I loved your book. I said it was very emotional, and it was for many different reasons. But let's start at the beginning. Why would your grandfather have shot you? Well, it's something that I said once because I so do not represent the Aryan ideal. You can't see me, but I'm half black. My father's Nigerian. And maybe also because he so randomly shot people, so there would have been a chance that it would also have been me. He shot people from the balcony of, of his home just outside the concentration camp at random. Absolutely. You learned all of this by accident. Tell me about discovery. Yeah, this is uh, something that sounds like fiction, but it's reality. Well, maybe go a bit, I'll go a bit back in time before I start how I made the discovery because what is important to know for those who don't know me, I was adopted as a child. And very often if you hear that someone is adopted, you assume that this person does not know uh, the biological family. In my case, it was a bit different because I was raised in an orphanage first under nuns, and then I came to a foster family, but I would still see my mother, my biological mother, and my biological grandmother sporadically, so I knew who I was, I mean, a bit, but it was really limited information for years, so then I was adopted, just for you to have a brief uh, understanding who I am. And this is actually what I thought for many years was my past. But when I was 38, I one day went into a public library in my hometown. I live in Germany in the north in Hamburg. And it's a huge library, not a small building, a huge building with thousands of books. And I happened to be in the uh, psychology section, in the psychology department of the uh, library, not in the history uh, department, what one might assume. And I saw a book on the shelf. Uh, it was a book that I could only see the spine, not the cover yet. And I read on the spine the author's name. The author's name I wasn't familiar with. The name was Matthias Kessler. I've never heard of the name. And I also read the title of the book. And the title was, um, I have to love my father, don't I? Somehow, um, I wanted to know more, so I took the book from the shelf and I glanced very quickly at the cover. And on the cover, there was a subtitle. It said, Monica Goethe, daughter of the concentration camp commandant from Schindler's List. And there was also a small photograph of a woman, a woman with, uh, I couldn't, I mean, it was a black and white photograph, so I couldn't really see her properly. But there was something intriguing in her eyes. And there was, in the background, a man. 
and a man holding a rifle in his hands. So what I did was I started leaving through the pages of the book, first very slowly and then faster and faster, and I would discover photographs. And there was one photograph of a woman, and the woman had long, long, dark black hair, and she reminded me of my biological mom. And there was another picture of an older woman, and she wore a summer, a floral summer dress. And under the picture, there was a caption, and it said, Ruth Irene. Ruth Irene was the name of my grandmother, and for all these years after I came out of the orphanage and when I was adopted, I had kept a single photograph of my grandmother, and the woman on the photograph had the exact same dress. So to come to the end, I, in the end of the book as well that I had in my hand, there was a summarization of some biographical details, and these details perfectly, really perfectly, one-to-one the information that I had surrounding my adoption paperwork. So this was the moment that um, I realized that I was not just holding a random book in my hands, but that this was a book that told the story of my biological family, my mother, my grandmother, and of my biological grandfather. And he was? He was Amon Goethe. Amon Goethe is a name that many are not familiar with, because when you open up the history books, you don't uh, see the name very often. But he became known to millions of people because The story was featured in the movie Schindler's List. My grandfather was the concentration camp commandant and Oskar Schindler uh, was his nemesis. So he was portrayed uh, among good by Ralph Fiennes. And I think also here the American audience, almost everyone has watched the movie. It's a very powerful document of the Holocaust. Dan Rich, what do you know of Amon Goethe? Well, of course, initially I encountered him in the film Schindler's List, and it really imprints, he really imprints because of the randomness of his violence, the casualness of his violence, really struck a chord and really seared in the memory. And of course, after I entered the field of Holocaust studies, I learned much more. So He, he was a monster. You know, monster, yeah, yes. <laughs> Although I always like to say, if you call someone a monster, kind of gives them an excuse to do monstrous things. It was Christopher Browning that wrote a book about uh, mass killers. He called it Ordinary Men. The point was, these were ordinary men with families, with relationships, with pets, church-going perhaps, and yet... They were also capable of this great evil. Jennifer, how would you describe your grandfather? You never knew him, obviously. He was hanged shortly uh, after the war. Yeah, he was uh, put on trial in Poland. Many think he was at the Nuremberg trial, but he wasn't. He was uh, extradited to Poland. So he was hanged in 1946. No, I didn't know him. I was born in 1970. But I can agree wholeheartedly um, to the explanation that Dan gave, because I also do think when you say monster, it doesn't... Well, the thing is, what he did was monstrous, but it's still a human being, and you need to understand the complexity of a person really to make people also understand that it's not something that is laid upon a person. You know, it's not that you become evil. It's you are responsible for your decisions, and monster sounds like something you're not responsible for. It's just something you're born 
And it's not like this. You're not born like this. You make the wrong decisions. You, be, you become the person you are, and you do monstrous things. Mm-hmm. You had a very difficult time processing this information once you learned it at age 38, as you say. And one of the things that you were concerned about is you might have inherited a gene or something that uh, of his. Well, I wasn't uh, thinking about it in such an intellectual way in the beginning. The the, the discovery was so uh, scary and I was so petrified because it was not something that I expected. It came out of the blue. So this made it really difficult, first of all, to deal with the new situation. But it was also the question, you know, when you look at yourself, and I haven't had pictures of my biological families many for years, so... I remember that I had one picture now of Amon Goethe. It was actually a, a picture where he was when he after he was caught uh, for, by the by the Americans, I think. So it's a picture where you can see him. It's a close up of his face, and um, I was looking at his face, and I was also looking at, at my face, and it was so s- scary because we have or we share some physical similarities. So in the very beginning, before I was really able to process everything and think rationally, yes, I thought maybe I inherited something and maybe, you know, it's something we are alike. But what is so important for me to, to, to also to share with people is you can't, you know, just because you have physical similarities, it doesn't say about something about your character. I mean, it would even support uh, the racist idea, you know, if you would argument like this. So in the beginning, I was so confused that I was afraid. But now I say it very clearly, there is no Nazi gene. There's not, not a gene existing, you know. Why did your mother and grandmother not uh, tell you any of this? Do you know? Well, I don't know. I think, you know, first of all, my grandmother, um, she passed away. I saw her uh, when I was a little child. And when you're very little, you don't talk to children. I mean, I saw the, both of them, or oh, my grandmother lost when I was seven years old. So you don't talk about history with children. And my mother I saw later, uh, so she would have had the chance uh, to say something. What she said to me and the explanation actually makes sense. It, it's not that I think it's it's a good thing what she did, and I encourage everyone not to have secrets. But she thought if I wouldn't know, it wouldn't bother me. You know, she was somehow her way of protecting me. But what you have to understand is just because you don't know something, it's still existing. It's not that it's not there. And what makes it even worse is that when you have these toxic secrets, these toxic family secrets, they work on a subconscious level and then they can lead to all kind or they find its outlets in other, in a different way. Addiction, for example, or I was struggling with depression for many years. So you need to, to open up. You can't hide these things. And we will probably talk about it later, but I do it differently with my children. Yeah. Dan, um, could we apply the same sort of thinking to the victims of the Holocaust, the unwillingness, inability to talk about the experience for a first generation or maybe a generation or two? Of course, there's a range of responses. But <clears throat> in fact, there is some similarity in certain cases where the survivor really did not want to damage the child, to bring darkness into the child's life, so withheld the horrible memories of what they had experienced. Uh, And of course, the child may have not wanted to ever 
you know, hurt the parents, uh, uh, have painful conversations. So there often wasn't that much communication. Uh, survivors were getting on with their lives, were looking forward, and in many cases, as Jennifer said, thought best for their children not to hear this darkness. And there are many examples of parents that did share, but there was always a tendency to to hold back in many cases. May I add something? What I also think is for the children was difficult to ask because they didn't want it, you know, to to there is so much pain and they didn't want their parents to feel the pain again. So this made them to shut up. Uh, definitely. Uh, if if the parent was unwilling, you really didn't want to press. And it's mm -hmm. interesting, speaking in generalization, survivors tend to be much more open with their grandchildren. Time has gone on. There's some distance. Uh, they've grown. They feel it's important that there be a record that they do want to share. There's been so much oral history. It's interesting, Schindler's List was kind of a turning point, followed by the uh, Shoah Foundation's interviews. The survivors now became much more willing to tell, to testify, to share testimony, knowing that it would be taken seriously, that it would be done properly, and realizing it was very important to speak for the record for history. Yeah. I have to take a break, but a quick uh, question for Jennifer. If you were in that situation, if, uh, if it had been your father, you talked about how you treat your children differently, would you have told your children? Well, uh, today, I'm thinking in today in today's terms. Yeah, well, my mother made the decision not uh, to speak about it. Well, I when I made the discovery, not immediately after I told my children because I suffered a post-traumatic stress disorder. I was very weak myself, and I wanted to have or be clear-headed when I talk about it with my all, children. All attributed to this information you learned about your grandfather. Well, is probably it? not only because mm. I always say, you know, when you suffer early deprivation as a, a small child, mm. I grew up in an orphanage, sure. foster care, stuff like I this. It. So it adds, but I think you know, probably one of the triggers was the discovery that the the started again really to break out. Now I told uh, my children because I thought the toxic power needed to be lifted from that family secret and I once um, compared it to a mobile you know these things mm. that you have in a room mm -hmm. for the babies and I always felt like I was um, like strings were pulling and I wasn't really able to to really react the way I wanted because I was hold in the system and I want my children to grow up differently and for them it's I think easier because first of all it's there's more distance it's a great grandfather and we haven't talked a lot about my grandmother but I had a close relationship to her and so for me it became far more personal I think and not just a distant figure my grandfather because he was the man my grandmother loved so dearly. We'll come back and talk about that mm -hmm. in just a moment but very very quickly because I do have to take mm -hmm. a break. How did your children react to the news? Well, um, they were so small that they didn't really no, understand, okay. I think. And I, I'll tell you after the break because it's important. But uh, Okay, we'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. I do have to take this break now. We're talking with Jennifer Teague, a Teague who is the author of My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me, A Black Woman Discovers Her Family's Nazi Past. She's with me in studio along with Dan Rich from the St. Louis Holocaust Museum and Learning Center. Back to continue this conversation in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.
Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our conversation with Jennifer Tiga, author of Why or My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me, and with Dan Rich of the St. Louis Holocaust Museum and Learning Center. Let's go back to your grandmother. Your grandmother committed suicide. She was... Had, as you wrote in your book, uh, Amon was the great love of her life. And it really bears out what Dan said about the, my use of the word monster, that he was a person and people have, uh, have relationships. Tell me about your grandmother. Well, I saw her lots when I was a, a little girl. So the memories that I have are very distant. I just remember that I really liked her. And um, I had a difficult upbringing also in so far that my mother was not together with my father, so she was in an abusive relationship. And, you know, therefore my grandmother played maybe an even bigger role in my life because I trusted her and I liked her. And it was somehow um, a very big disappointment for me to find out that she had two faces. This is how I felt when I made the discovery of my mother's book. And she was suddenly in such a different light, being able to live uh, with a man like Amongert next to concentration camp. Closing her eyes was something that was impossible for me to process and to understand. Well, a lot of people ask or have asked why do I think she loved him? I don't have an explanation. You know, love is something that sometimes you can't explain. My biggest um, my biggest issue is that I think that she must have left him because I think by what she saw and being so close to what happened um, next to a concentration camp and still staying with someone like Amangard is something that is unforgivable. Do you think her suicide was connected to that relationship? Well, the circumstances were as such. My grandmother gave an interview to a reporter. It was a documentary that was shot before Schindler's List. They wanted to have some voices from um, or testimonies from people at that time. It was not just my grandmother. It was also, for example, the widow of Oskar Schindler that they interviewed. And they, she gave an interview to a, 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 a team of reporters, a journalist, uh, the night before she committed suicide. And she was ask all kind of questions, obviously, also about Amangut and the war. So I think it may have triggered it, but she was also very sick. She had a lung disease, and she knew that uh, her days were counted. Mm-hmm. Dan Rich, um, it, it seems to me, let me see if you agree, that uh, there were, of course, millions of victims of the Holocaust, but the women we're talking about here today, in a sense, are victims too, are they not? Definitely your mother seems to me to have been a victim of those circumstances. A little more complicated with your grandmother, who said, said a range of things from I knew nothing about what was going on to when she said she actually helped and helped the maids in the house. And... Uh, there's definitely a lot of conflict. There also, clearly, she deeply loved Amon Good. 
If I add something or if I may add something, Please. because there was, of course, a discussion after the war and people, some were put on trial, others were not. I do think, you know, if you don't stand up, and this is also clearly uh, mm. something that counts for nowadays, if you don't stand up, if you don't open your mouth, you're someone who is guilty, you are a bystander. And if you look at uh, the time in Germany, you know, it was not, oh, Hitler was given the power by people. So there were lots of bystanders who were not put on trial also my grandmother, but I do think that she was guilty. Mm. You are guilty if you don't say for, anything for not against speaking up. She clearly witnessed so much, so there is clearly some culpability there, and I would definitely agree with Jennifer about uh, one of the major lessons we try to teach is about not being a bystander, and that being a bystander can have a degree of culpability. You take some responsibility by not acting. Jennifer, do you consider yourself in any sense a victim of this time? No. Yeah. I mean, it certainly has affected the, the knowledge that you learned about your grandfather certainly affected your life in, in very uh, significant ways. That's true, but I I think hopefully I was able to turn it into something positive. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I gave a speak, speech and tonight I'm going to speak as well and I try to educate people. I'm German, so by being German in Germany, Holocaust education is mandatory. You know, I know a lot about the past, and I see how things um, clearly um, change for for the bad. And I see myself in a position where I can warn people and speak out loudly, and this is what I'm doing. So I see it now as a privilege because I have a voice that is heard. Yeah. Well, you just heard the headline that I read about maybe acknowledging the German names of streets in this uh, city that were taken down uh, as a result of World War I. These things tend to hang around for a long, a long time. Yeah. Uh, Dan, tell me something about survivor's guilt. And, you know, I think there's, I, I believe it was a re uh, reference in your book, Jennifer, about inherited guilt, f feeling guilty by inheritance. But there's also a survivor's guilt, is there not, Dan? There is. There is a phenomenon of why did I survive and not my sibling? Why did I survive and not other worthy people? Why me? When you saw so much suffering around you and you're the one spared, did lead to certain, again, a certain amount of survivor guilt. And some of that trauma did go on, does go on to the next generation. I should say the museum has a group for survivors and descendants, and they get together and discuss a lot of these issues. But how the survivor conveyed the information or chose not to really affected the next generation. But I should also say, as with time we're losing survivors, it's the second generation that are filling in, that are now speaking, that are telling their family story, uh, and stepping up in that way. So, Jennifer, you toured the Holocaust Museum yesterday, as I understand it. Um, 
did you speak there? You said you have had some speaking engagements. If so, what do you say when you go to places like that? Well, I was actually at the museum, but I encourage everyone to go. At the, mm. I was at the History Museum, but I encourage everyone to go to the Holocaust Museum because it's important. You know, it's an educational center, and it teaches people to stand up against violence, hate, and so on and so forth. Um, what I say to people is I tell my story, and I use my story actually to make a point. What, or the point that I want to make today is that I see that there's a rising threat by populist leaders around the world. And what I say is that people think it cannot happen again. And what I tell them is that there is a danger that it happens again. It probably is in a different phase. Uh, it's a different, uh, I don't know, different clothes, we say. I don't know how you translate it mm -hmm. correctly in English. That's, that's close enough, it looks, yeah. a, it looks a little bit different, but it's the same mechanism. And as I said, Hitler was given the power by people, so people need to be really careful who they trust. Well, you're going through that in your own country right now. Absolutely. We have problems everywhere. It's not, I mean, it's, it's in Germany. We have a right-wing party that is now in parliament. It's a problem in Europe. Um, I don't want to mention or single out different uh, countries, but look at Hungary. Many, many of them. Yeah, I'm look sure. at France. It's a, it's a global problem that is spreading around the world. We just talked about Brazil, a new leader in Brazil. We talked about uh, the Philippines. We talk about the U.S. You see, I mean, around the world, violence. Just if we look at the newspaper of the last few days, it's a disaster. But what I also want to add, because I don't want to add to these people who just show a horror, horror scenario, I think that the world still, you know, there's a lot of good things. And if you look at the statistics, illiteracy is going down and the health issues is taken care of. So we're living in, in, in times that are dangerous and difficult, but there's still a lot of good out there. I think the Chinese say we live in interesting times, <laughs> yeah. something to that effect. Dan, what do you make of what's going on, this, this populist movement, this right-wing surge around the, around the world? You know, it's hard not to see parallels. Uh, we're very careful to acknowledge the similarities, but also the differences. And uh, the importance, one of the other things, in addition to the lesson of not being a bystander, is to be aware, be very aware of what's going on locally, nationally, internationally, just mm -hmm. what's going on in the world around us so you're aware of the trends. That's the value of a book like Jennifer's, I think, is to maintain that uh, awareness of what it was and being more cognizant of what it is today. As very well. much. And uh, the Holocaust Museum and Learning Center was very pleased to, to support bringing Jennifer here together with the Jewish Federation. We are a department of the Jewish Federation. But I really want to thank the Missouri Humanities Council who pulled this together and brought Jennifer here for the lovely event tonight, what I know is going to be a very powerful lecture this evening. Yeah, and that's going to be at St. Louis University. I'll mention the time and place uh, be before we leave. I, have, I want to take a quick phone call here, but one of the irony, uh, ironies I found in the book, Jennifer, was the fact that you were so heavily invested in Israel <laughs> before you had any idea of what your family's background was and, and had many, and still do, I'm sure, close friends during your, from your time in that country. Yeah, it's important. We shouldn't miss that point because I told you that I was so deeply shocked when I made the discovery. And, you know, probably because it came so out of the blue, but what was also um, something that added to my 
my uh, surprise was I have a very deep um, connection to Israel, to the Jewish people, because I lived in Israel. I studied in Israel for four years, and I speak Hebrew. I speak Hebrew fluently. So I'm very close, and I have probably a better understanding of the history and the DNA of the people than many others. Right. Well, there is a certain irony to all yeah. of that, needless to say. Let's take a call from Mike, who's calling from St. Louis. Mike, th- thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Don. Thank you. Yeah, I was born in Germany, but I grew up in this country, uh, born in 46. And it took me many years to essentially, once I discovered about what the Germans had done in the World War II, and it took me to, to a teenager to get to that point. But I t- took me also years to forgive myself for being German. But I finally recognized that all cultures have the capacity to do what was done in Germany. And Germany was in a perfect storm. It had a giant depression that put people out of work and the economy collapsed. And then you had also worldwide, you had the concept of eugenics, which was becoming very popular, even in America, the idea that we could have a super race. And then you had radio, which gave Hitler this giant megaphone that had not been had before. And uh, all those things together and uh, and other things brought us to a point that is, you know, a cautionary tale for today. Uh, Right now we have the Internet and Facebook and Twitter uh, that is doing some of the things that radio did back in the 20s and 30s. And uh, we have uh, an economic collapse for a bunch of people who uh, feel wronged and, and they need to blame someone for that. So that's our cautionary tale that we don't sort of fall into that trap. Uh, thanks for the call, Mike. You want to respond to that, Jennifer? Well, I think it's, you really put it uh, very... I couldn't have uh, said it better, especially when you mentioned Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> From nowadays, it's uh, something that was added, but radio, the news, everything. Yeah, um, I was listening to the news before I came here, and it was interesting because they encouraged people from the other side, sorry, to have a conversation. And it's even interesting to say that you have the other side, that the society is so divided Mm. politically and that you still need to talk to each other. You need unity. This is something that we need to promote. And to be united, you have to discuss and you have to have an open conversation. But I still think there's right and wrong and we have to, you know, have our moral and ethics standards. They need to be high and they need to be kept high. Dan, how do you apply the kinds of things that we're talking about today to the the educational arm of the museum? Well, part of the museum's mission is to teach both the history and the lessons of the Holocaust. So as the caller said, it's really important to learn the lessons from this history and uh, you know glean the the importance from it. Also regarding what he said, one of our survivors would always say, not every German was a Nazi, and not every Nazi was a German. And it was important not to paint with a broad brush. So as he came to forgive himself and realize we're talking about individual people and choices, choices people make and choices that we all make, something also very important that uh, we try to promote at the museum. Jennifer, do you ever feel guilty for being German because of all of this? Well, when I was in Israel uh, at the very beginning, I felt it a tiny little bit because I didn't know how people would react. But, I mean, the color of my skin is a good uh, 
people to, I mean, like people don't see that I'm German, so it was a good thing to hide. Um, so I know how it feels when you feel uncomfortable saying that you're German, but I so much don't feel German in so many aspects. I feel more like a global citizen. That today it's not really uh, something that um, yeah I feel guilty of. I feel ashamed. I even think it's important to say that you're German, that people can see not every German is like a stereotype. Mm -hmm. I don't look German, but I am German. Would you, would you comment on that for me, Dan? Well, I would definitely agree, and I thought one of the really powerful uh, sections of the book, which you kind of alluded to, was your hesitancy to bring your history to your Israeli friends, mm. not knowing what had happened in their own families, and, of course, the importance of the Holocaust to the Israeli psyche, that you really held back. And I found that very moving trying to find the right time to tell one and the other. I thought one of the most powerful moments was also when you spoke to Israeli children, youth, who had come to Poland. Very powerful. Let, let's not give too much of that uh, away. Our, our time is up, and there's going to be an opportunity tonight for Jennifer to tell that part of the story and any other parts of the story that people want to listen to. Uh, Jennifer Tiga, thank you so much for being with us. A wonderful book, and as I say, very emotional read. You did a great job with it. And Dan Rich, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Really enjoyed that. Jennifer will be appearing tonight at Cook Hall at St. Louis University at 6 o'clock. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.